Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, the novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she hid millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where, but that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now, Part 6 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation. Chapter 15 Eleanor Rainey sat across the table from Jennifer in the quiet tea house. A delighted smile appeared on her face when the server appeared with a multi-tiered stand filled with various finger foods and delicate desserts and set it between the two women. You must try the cucumber sandwiches, the older woman suggested. They're my favorite. Jennifer picked up one of the small triangles of carefully constructed layers and popped it into her mouth. Delicious, she said before her mouth was empty. Nate doesn't enjoy tea. He doesn't like that they just bring you a lot of tiny things you can try. He thinks a meal should tell a story. Have you ever heard anything so silly? I think a meal should fill your belly and make your tongue happy. I agree, Jennifer said. Is that why he didn't come? Because we were eating here? Eleanor asked. I did invite him, Jennifer lied. I just wanted it to be a girl's lunch. Well, it's all for the best. I'm still mad at him, Eleanor confessed. I don't blame you. I'm upset with him as well. I never would have asked him to join us if I thought he wouldn't behave himself. Eleanor took a bite of a miniature pie. I know he only does it because he's trying to protect me, she said. I just wish he would trust me. Jennifer sipped from her tea. You know why he worries, don't you? She asked Eleanor. Eleanor looked away, embarrassed. I know, but I don't care about money and things the way he does. I don't doubt that, Jennifer said, recalling their recent conversation about the bills. I just miss Ben so much. It makes me feel better to know he's with me, that I can talk to him, tell him about Nate. I understand. I just wish Nate would accept that I can speak with his father. That he could, too. Jennifer nodded. I think the problem is that when Nate was on the police force, he saw a lot of people who called themselves psychics, but who were really just conmen, frauds exploiting grieving people. This isn't like that, Eleanor insisted. Jennifer nodded. You may trust them, but all Nate sees is someone out to squeeze the last buck from an unsuspecting, vulnerable old lady. Harmony would never do that to me, Eleanor insisted. I'm sure you're right. She tells me things only Ben would know, and when I talk to him through her, I know it's him. I know him. Jennifer reached out and placed a hand on Eleanor's. 
I have no doubt that's true, Eleanor. But Harmony has a certain personality that makes it difficult for Nate to consider your side. So, Eleanor began, you're the expert. What do you think I should do? Well, I happen to know someone who is very good at this sort of thing, and he presents in a way that may be more palatable to Nate. Eleanor shook her head. I don't know if that's possible. He's not very open-minded about psychics. Yes, I know, but I think I'm wearing him down. The older woman smiled knowingly. I'm sure you are. I never would have thought he would become a, what did you call it? A paranormal investigator. Well, the arrangement is that I'm the parapsychologist. He's the private eye. I hope that by working together, I can get him to look at the world around him and his own experiences from a different point of view. Oh, I don't know about all that. What I do know is that a man will do almost anything for a pretty girl. Jennifer tried unsuccessfully not to blush. Nate and I are just friends and colleagues. Dear, I've known Nate all of his life. I can count the number of women he's brought home on one hand. And you've already moved in with him. We don't live together, Eleanor. We just share an office. You don't have to pretend with me, Jennifer. Has he made his tiramisu for you? Eleanor asked. Jennifer thought back to a stakeout she and Nate conducted not so many months earlier. He had volunteered to bring the food after she teased him about buying donuts and Red Bull. It turned out he was quite an accomplished chef. The assortment of gourmet treats he provided included a decadently delicious tiramisu. The pause in her reply was all the confirmation Eleanor needed. I thought so. Jennifer blushed. Trust me, dear. We don't have as much time on this earth as you think. You shouldn't spend it making excuses. Why don't we just work on getting Nate to come see my friend with us? Eleanor poked at her food with her fork. I don't know. I mean, Ben expects me to talk to him through harmony. I promise you. Ben is with you wherever you go. I know you like Harmony, but Nate is never going to take her seriously. And you think he might be more open with your friend? I do. And I don't have to stop seeing Harmony. How about you just take a break? Eleanor put down her fork and placed her hands in her lap. Well, if Nate trusts you, I guess I can give it a try. Chapter 16 Nate drove while Dave tapped away at his laptop. A GPS app on the phone mounted to the dashboard showed the route to Danville, a small community east of San Francisco in a valley at the foot of Mount Diablo. Formerly home to ranches and wheat farms, then later fruit and nut orchards, it had grown into a nice little high-end suburb. Dave's computer gave a terse warning about running out of power. He rushed to save the document he was editing before the screen went black, then closed his computer. He looked out at the passing scenery. Have you ever been to Danville before? Dave asked. Nate nodded. Work or pleasure? Both. Dave took Nate's limited response as a sign he wasn't interested in having a conversation that passed the time. They still had almost twenty minutes before they reached their exit. I've been there to question witnesses, and my dad used to take me to the National Park to go hiking when I was a kid, Nate said. What about you? Dave was caught off guard. Me? I've never been there. Really? You live less than an hour away and you've never come out here? I know there are some archaeological sites in the area. Yeah, Native American history isn't my thing. And I grew up in New York. Central Park is about all the nature I can take. I didn't know you were from New York, Nate said. Really? I thought you were supposed to be a detective, Dave said sarcastically. He glanced at Nate, but he apparently didn't find the comment funny. 
He wore a stern expression and stared straight ahead. Sorry, Dave said reflexively. I didn't mean... Nate smiled. I'm just messing with you, Dave. The grad student laughed nervously. I know you did your undergrad at the University of Iowa, finished second in your high school class, collect Chia pets, and have seven unpaid parking tickets. I do? No, I'm just messing with you again on the last one. You did a background check on me? Of course I did. You're practically living in my house. And as you pointed out, I am supposed to be a detective. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Dave paused for a second. What did you find out about Bits? I found out that he is a digital black hole. There's nothing about him after the eighth grade. That's kind of disturbing. But not illegal. What about Emily? What about her? Anything interesting? Like, does she have a boyfriend? No, I'm not interested in her, Dave replied, a bit too defensively. She shot you down, huh? None of your business. I don't blame you. She does have an air of mystery, Nate remarked. Not that difficult when you don't really talk to anyone, Dave added. She is a hard nut to crack. Yeah, the complete opposite of Dr. Day. What do you mean? Nate asked. You know, it's obvious that she's into you, Dave said. Excuse me? I mean, you two are a thing, right? No, Nate said emphatically. We just work together. Oh, Dave replied, surprised. We thought that you two were... We? Nate asked. Well, me, Bits, and Emily, and your old partner, Max. When do you talk to Max? He calls once in a while. Mostly he asks how you're doing. Really? Why doesn't he just ask me? He says you don't tell him anything interesting. Nate grunted. What do you tell him? Dave shrugged. Nothing. Dave, you know I can tell when you're lying. Dave had suspected as much. Nate always seemed to regard Dave with suspicion whenever he was keeping something from the detective. He just wants to know how you're doing, how your shoulder's doing. I think he hopes you might come back. Nate knew that wasn't the whole story. Max had been there when Nate was shot, and the younger detective had put a lot of the blame for Nate's injury on himself. He'd seen a marked difference in his old partner. Whenever they'd gotten together for lunch or went out for drinks with some of the other guys from the force, Max was less the brash rule-breaker he had been as Nate's partner and more professional, often picking Nate's brain about some case or another. The one thing that didn't change was Max's preoccupation with Nate's love life. So are we stopping by the family's house first? Nate asked his passenger in an unsubtle attempt to change the subject. Not this trip, Dave said. Dr. Day likes me to get as much background as I can before we actually visit anyone. So just the library. Always the best place to start. Librarians are notorious gossips. Nate laughed. I can't picture you dishing dirt with some middle-aged bibliophiles. Usually Emily handles that part. Nate tried to form a mental picture. Nope, can't picture that one either. She's actually a theater minor. Not always the broody goth girl. She can turn on whatever personality she needs when she wants to. Makes you wonder if the whole dark misanthrope is just a role. Yes, it does, Dave agreed. They passed a sign on the side of the highway, letting them know they'd entered the city limits. A short while later, they took an off-ramp and found themselves rolling through the usual collection of small shopping centers until they reached a residential section. The architecture shifted from a modern utilitarian style to an eclectic collection of rustic farmhouses and ranch-style homes. The GPS guided them through an older part of the city until they reached a cluster of buildings, one of which had a sign out front indicating it was the home to the Danville Public Library. Nate pulled into the parking lot. 
How long are you going to need? I have no idea, Dave replied. I don't suppose you want to help? I think I'll be more used chatting up the local constabulary. Nobody says constabulary. I do. Give me a call when you're done. Okay. Dave gathered his things and opened the door. He stepped out and then turned back to Nate, checking his watch. Do you want to meet for lunch, maybe? He asked tentatively. Call me when you're done, Nate repeated. Dave nodded, closed the car door, and headed for the library. Nate reached over and tapped the screen on his phone to pull up the address for the family that had reached out to Jennifer. He cringed when a bolt of pain shot through his shoulder. The injury hadn't bothered him during the drive, but when he reached for the phone, it felt like there was a shard of glass scraping along every nerve. He fought through the discomfort and programmed the GPS. Usually, a couple of deep breaths were enough to get past these moments, but this time, the pain settled in and refused to let go. With his left hand, Nate pulled out the prescription bottle from his jacket pocket. He placed the bottom of the bottle against his leg and pressed down on the lid, and with a practiced twist, opened it. He held the bottle up to his mouth and shook out a pill directly onto his tongue. The taste was bitter, even more so after he crunched down on it and used a small amount of saliva in his mouth to swallow it. He knew it would take a moment to take the edge off the pain, but just the promise of relief was enough for him to continue on his way. Chapter 17 Nate took his time winding his way through the town toward the foreman's house. He didn't take the route his phone suggested, but instead took a more circuitous path, experiencing the different aspects of the town. There are examples of older ranch houses that had one time stood alone at the center of a farm or orchard, but now were nestled in among newer homes and businesses, remnants of a previous age. When he reached the foreman residence, he didn't stop. He just slowed down a bit, taking in the freshly painted exterior and its impressive garden. There was a car parked in the driveway, and Nate thought he saw a woman through one window hunched over a computer. It was a weekday, so the children were in school. From all outward appearances, it was a normal rural household. As he roamed the area, he saw signs of a burgeoning neighborhood, with new construction nearby, though the foreman house still remained fairly secluded, as it was nestled against a forest and backstopped by wooded foothills. Nate waited till he reached a stop sign before entering his next destination. The pill had done its work and the pain in his shoulder was now a dull ache, accompanied by a little stiffness. Soon he was on his way back into the heart of Danville, toward the municipal building that the city government shared with the police station. He parked and found the entrance to the newly renovated station at the side of the building. It led to a small lobby that felt like an airlock to a bunker. There was a thick metal door with a digital keypad lock, and next to it a window like you might see at a bank drive through It had glass that was inches thick, and a drawer one could use to pass items back and forth. There was no one at the window, but there was a button labeled, Press for Assistance. Nate pressed it. He didn't hear anything, but a moment later a uniformed woman appeared. Her voice came across an intercom. How can I assist you? she asked in an officious monotone. Nate pulled out his private investigator credentials and held them up to the window. Hi, Nate Rainey. I'm retired SFPD. I may be working a case in town, and I thought I'd drop by and check in. I was wondering if there was anyone I might be able to talk to. Just want to get some background. The officer behind the glass gave the credentials a quick glance, then pulled a lever on her side, causing the drawer to open on Nate's. Put it in the drawer, she said. Nate placed the wallet that held his ID into the drawer. It retracted, and the officer took his credentials and disappeared behind another door. Nate spotted a pair of chairs in the corner and decided to wait in one. The door opened much sooner than he expected. An older man in uniform, 
a bit thick around the middle, stepped forward, scanned the room, and spotted Nate sitting in the chair. Holy shit, it is you. What is all this private detective crap? He asked, tossing the badge to Nate. It took him a moment to place the brash police chief, a face from his past. Captain Lewis, he asked. What are you doing here? It's Chief Lewis, detective. But since you're no longer on the job, make it Brian. Nate rose, and the two men shook hands heartily. How's that old uncle of yours doing? He's hanging in there, enjoying his retirement. I see him every week. Good, good. I heard about your heroics, Lewis said. More like stupidity. I acted like an impulsive rookie. You saved lives, Lewis said, clasping Nate's left shoulder in a meaty hand. That's never stupid. Thanks, Nate said. He knew that was true, but it was nice to hear it from his old captain. So, how did you end up here? I thought you and Nancy were riding off into the retirement sunset. Yeah, that lasted about a month. Then I heard about this job. I actually got my start here before I moved to the big city. The pace isn't as crazy, and I've got a lot of great men and women working under me. Come on in. Lewis held the door open and allowed Nate to precede him into the station. They passed a bullpen of 911 operators, then entered a hallway that led past a series of offices. There was an open area that resembled some of the open-planned tech offices Nate had seen, but instead of hipster coders, it was filled with uniformed and plainclothes officers. They entered the chief's office. The older man made his way behind his desk to an oversized chair and motioned for Nate to take a seat at one of the plush armchairs sitting in front of it. Let's get down to business. What brings you and your shiny new P.I. badge to our neck of the woods? Nate realized he hadn't prepared for how he was going to explain that he was here gathering background for Jennifer's investigation. Favor for a friend, he said. Not a lie, but not exactly the whole truth, either. Do you know anything about a house out on Pine? 455? Farmhouse? New family? Looks like they did some major renovations. The foreman's, Lewis answered without hesitation. Nate reacted with surprise. You know them? The wife, Marcia, did some work for us. Updated our website design, streamlined our workflow, tweaked our UI and UX, and all sorts of other stuff I could repeat, but couldn't explain if you held a gun to my head. I believe her husband, Greg, works over at the Costco. What's going on with them? I can't go into it, Nate said. Confidentiality and all that. Can you tell me if it's anything I need to be worried about? No, it's not a police matter. Because if it's anything to do with Dale Everly, you really should let me know. Dale Everly? Nate asked. Lewis nodded. I guess he's not a big enough story to make it out to the bay. What is the story? Oh, it's a doozy. He and his wife broke into a local bank vault. Nearly got away with it, too. But Danville's finest managed to stop their getaway. When was this? About 15 years ago. I was a brand spanking new patrolman at the time. When the burglary went down, I was taking a missing persons report on a lost kid. I guess you missed all the excitement, Nate said. Well, I more than made up for it when I joined SFPD, Lewis replied. So what's the story with Dale Everly? Nate asked. He just got out of prison. What about the wife? Dead. She was shot by officers at their home, trying to make her escape. Did she fire on them? Nate asked. I don't remember the details, but apparently before she died, she hid part of the loot from the bank. Violent death on the property. Nate knew this was something that Jennifer would seize on to bolster her assumption that there was a ghost hanging out with the boy. The husband didn't know where it was? Nate asked. If he did, he's kept his mouth shut for fifteen years. Obviously, they searched the house. 
Yeah, I think if the foremans had found a diamond necklace hidden in the walls of that old place when they remodeled, we would have heard about it. A diamond necklace? Nate asked. Among other things, including nearly a hundred thousand in cash. Nate whistled, impressed. I'm guessing Everly came back to town when he got out. He's down near Walnut. We're keeping an eye on him. Anyone else around who was with the force at the time of the robbery? Maybe someone who was at the house? Nate asked. There are a couple of old-timers. Liam McDonald comes to mind. He entertains the rookies with stories of that day. It was the biggest thing that happened to this town since the gold rush. He was there when she was shot. Can I talk to him? Sure. I think I saw him just before you got here. Lewis got up and walked over to the door where he had a view over the bullpen area. McDonald, got a sec? he asked, returning to his desk without waiting for an answer. A moment later, Liam McDonald entered. What's up, chief? he asked, offering a friendly smile to Nate. Have a seat, Lewis said. This is Nate Rainey, formerly of the San Francisco Police Department. He was asking about the old Everly place. Yeah, the foreman's, Liam said as he eased himself into the other chair in front of the chief's desk. Marcia did that computer work. You think Dale Everly has any reason to give them any trouble? Liam scratched his head. Are you talking about the missing money? Well, from what I've heard, it never turned up. I can tell you we searched that house from top to bottom, even used metal detectors on the yard, the orchards across the road, and the woods behind the house. Never found anything. And I'm sure Everly knows it. If you think he might pay them a visit thinking it's there, there's no chance of that. Yeah, that's what I thought, Lewis agreed. Did you know the Everleys? Nate asked. Liam seemed surprised by the question. No, he answered, shaking his head. Something about the deputy's response made Nate suspicious. He stared the officer down. Liam shrugged. I'm sure I walked by them in town now and then. Danville was a bit smaller back then. But I didn't know them enough to say hi. Nate nodded. That house looks like it doesn't have many neighbors. I guess they kept to themselves, mostly. Yeah, I guess so. You were there when the police caught up to Everly's wife? Liam nodded. Why do you think she didn't just turn herself in? Liam shrugged. Who knows? Nate smiled. Indeed, he said, nodding in agreement. You were born in Danville? Liam reacted with surprise. What makes you say that? Well, not many people would be satisfied being an officer for over 15 years, unless they had ties to the community. I like it here, Liam replied. Nate considered the man's response. There was obviously more to the story. Well, thanks for talking to me. Nate offered his hand and he and Liam shook. That's all, MacDonald, Lewis said. Liam nodded to his boss, then got up and exited the office. Once he was gone, Lewis asked Nate, Any help? Yes, big help. Thanks, Nate replied. There was something about Liam MacDonald that rubbed Nate the wrong way. He felt like the officer was lying about something. But he wasn't quite sure what it was. Chapter 18 Jennifer sat at her end of the partner's desk grading exams with Emily. Emily was marking the multiple-choice questions, while Jennifer graded the essay portions of the test. It was a daunting stack, but Emily was nearly done with her task. Do you think Nate will bring Dave back alive? Emily asked. Jennifer grinned. I think the two of them can manage a one-hour road trip together. I would have killed Dave and buried him in the desert after ten minutes, Emily said. It's not like they're spending the whole day together. 
Dave will be in the library, and Nate will be off doing his ex-cop thing with the locals. If he does kill Dave, can I have his stuff? No one is killing Dave. They still have the drive back. Bits appeared in the doorway to the office. Have you seen my 6G router? He asked. There's no such thing as 6G, Emily said. Right, and the NSA isn't reading all your text messages. What does it look like? Jennifer asked. It looks like my 5G router, only smaller. That doesn't help, Bits, she said. It's about the size of your phone, but twice as thick, six fold-out antennas equidistant around the perimeter. Emily and Jennifer looked around the office. Where was the last place you saw it? Jennifer asked. On the Handelman stakeout? Maybe it's still in the van, Emily suggested. I'll go take a look. Emily walked over to where Jennifer had left her satchel to get the keys. Jennifer leaped out of her chair and snatched it out of Emily's hands. I'll get it, she said, fishing the van keys out of a pocket in the bag. You guys stay here. I'll be right back. Jennifer left the office and walked out through the kitchen toward the front door. That was odd. Does it seem like she's acting strange to you? Emily asked Bits. How would I know? He replied. Emily started after Jennifer. So we're not waiting for her? Bits asked rhetorically as he followed Emily to the front door. Jennifer opened the passenger side of the microbus and stepped between the seats into the cargo area in the rear. There was an airbed set up along the side and a clothes rack opposite. Another small set of shelves held a collection of Red Vans sneakers. At the back of the van were a few crates stacked on top of each other. Jennifer walked through the makeshift living quarters and started searching through the collection of gadgets, cables, and cords in the top crate. She lifted the top one off the stack and set it aside so she could search the next one. She found a rectangular device and inspected it. There were tiny arms folded around the edge. She lifted one up. This must be it, she said to herself. Jennifer opened the back of the van and stepped out into the daylight. Emily and Bits were standing there. Jennifer looked at them, then looked behind her at her makeshift living quarters. She turned back to her assistants and handed the router to Bits. Found it, she said. She closed the rear door to the microbus and headed back to the house. Dr. Day... Why are you living in your van? Emily asked. Jennifer froze. After a moment, she turned around and faced them with a forced smile. What makes you think I'm living in it? You have a bed and all your clothes inside, Bits answered. I thought you lived on the other side of campus, Emily added. Look, you can't tell Nate or Dave about this, Jennifer implored. About what? Emily asked. Jennifer walked back toward them and leaned against the van. When the dean cut off my office privileges, he also ended the funding for Dave's position. Emily nodded. Right, but you found a benefactor. Exactly, Jennifer said, then stood up straight and held out her arms. You're the benefactor, Bits deduced. And you can't afford your rent and Dave's tuition and salary, Emily added. And neither of you can tell Dave or Nate. Why? Because I'm going to fix all this soon, and it won't matter. But if Dave knew, he'd drop out, and he's so close to finishing his dissertation. He's been close for five years, Emily reminded her. And it'll be just another thing for Nate to worry about. So you two have to promise me you won't say anything. Emily and Bits nodded. Well, that was easier than I expected. Thanks. Jennifer checked her watch, then turned to Emily. Let's finish that grading. I've got a meeting with Dr. Ibarra and Dr. Long this afternoon to get ready for. She headed back for the house. Bits turned to Emily. Five bucks says Detective Rainey figures it out in a week. You're on. Chapter 19 Dale carried his grocery bags down the street on his way home. 
His heart skipped a beat when he saw Liam waiting for him on the front porch of Mrs. Laughlin's halfway house. Hello, Officer MacDonald, Dale said. He walked up to the house, climbed the steps, and took a seat on one of the weathered chairs on the deck. I thought you weren't coming by until tomorrow, he said. There was a P.E.I. at the station this morning asking questions. The chief said he was working for the family who moved into your old place. Any chance they may have discovered some hiding place we missed? Well, if they did, we'll find out soon enough. Liam regarded Dale, trying to divine if there was something he was keeping back. Yeah, I guess we will. You have any other ideas why they would be hiring a private eye who's been asking questions about you and Marine? Dale shook his head. I've been stuck in prison for the last 15 years. You would be the one with the answers to questions like that. Well, the only other answer I can come up with is that she maybe left a map behind, or some clue as to where she stashed the loot. And maybe the family found that and hired the detective to help them track it down. Maybe, Dale answered. So, the real question is, where haven't we looked? There's a lot of ground between the bank and the house. If she had an hour to stash the money somewhere, we'd need to narrow that down, Liam said. Dale nodded. He thought about that as well. Why didn't she stick to the plan? It was smart of her to ditch the loot. If she had been caught with it, the both of them would have been in jail. Instead, her life ended. Dale, are you listening? Liam asked. Dale shook himself out of his daydream. Yeah, yeah, I'm way ahead of you. He reached into one of the bags he had bought back and pulled out a folding paper map of Danville. I didn't know they still made those, Liam commented. They were next to the paperback books. I didn't know they still made those either, he said. You know, you can get maps online. Yeah, I met a lot of guys inside who plan their jobs on a computer. A little paranoid, are we? You don't think there's anyone out there who's watching my every move to see if I lead them to the money? Fine, let's use your phone. Liam reconsidered. All right, we'll do it your way. He stood up. You start thinking of where we have to look. I'm going to see what I can find out about that detective, Rainey. Dale stuffed the map into his bag and entered the house. Liam looked up and down the street, checking to see if there were any cars or vans that might be staking out Everly. Nothing stuck out. He got into his own car and drove away. Chapter 20 Nate looked at his phone to see if Dave had checked in. There were no messages, so he pulled up the address for the Danville Bank and navigated the downtown streets till he found it. He had pulled up some news stories on his phone about the bank robbery. There was a lot of current information recapping the heist on the occasion of Everly's release, and one of them had a photo of what the Danville City Center had looked like back then. There were a lot of changes in that relatively short amount of time, but the bank building was just the same as it had been, aside from a new logo on its sign. Then he tapped at the foreman's address and allowed the mapping app to generate the route for him. He examined it closely, trying to note any logical detours Everly's wife might have taken to hide the cash and valuables. There was an alternate path indicated that was of a slightly longer duration, but avoided much of the town. Nate suspected that Everly's wife would have wanted to avoid the direct route and instead circle around using the roads that cut through the foothills. Nate started driving, making his way across the interstate, past a patchwork of subdivisions that looked like they were fairly new, and onto a narrow, winding road. In his rearview mirror he could see Mount Diablo towering over the city. As the terrain grew rougher, the houses and farms were fewer and farther between until he was alone on the faded blacktop. As he rounded a sharp bend, 
a dark gray Hummer appeared on the road ahead of him, taking up most of the single lane. Nate slowed and hugged the shoulder as the giant vehicle passed. He glanced down at the GPS, checking the time to get to the foreman's house from here. He'd been driving for about ten minutes, and there were fifteen minutes still to go. So, wherever Everly's wife had hidden the loot could be no more than a ten or fifteen minute detour. These hills were riddled with old fire and logging roads, and he kept an eye out for any gaps in the trees that might lead to a possible hiding place. Something smashed into the back of his SUV, and he took his foot off the gas and gripped the steering wheel firmly with both hands. He looked in the rearview mirror and saw the grill of the gray Hummer right on his tail. What the hell, he thought to himself. He honked his horn, then rolled down the driver's side window and did his best to indicate that they should pull over to check out the damage. The Hummer slammed into him again. The SUV swerved, and Nate had to fight to regain control as he pressed down on the accelerator. The engine of the Hummer roared as it raced to catch up to him and hit the rear corner of the SUV, causing it to spin out of control. Nate watched the world turn through his windshield as his vehicle left the road and started tumbling down the steep slope. The last thing he remembered was seeing the glass shatter into a spider web of cracks.